Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Uh, Mark Sheedby, how the devil are you? Rusty, fine. Good to see you, buddy. How are you? Yeah, mate. I'm cool. I'm uh, I'm really good, and uh, yeah, I'm excited for this. Uh, as I said, like it's cool yeah. that I can now Google you, and I don't find like uh, this famous Mark Sheesby, who's a criminal, who uh, who's preventing you from getting a mortgage or or basically yeah. a bank account. Quite frankly, at least he was a decent criminal. Criminal. It was a multi-million pound. A mortgage fraud. The problem is, not only did he have my name, he lives in the same area as me, and he worked with a rugby club I worked with too, so we did get confused quite a lot. Oh, wow. Nice. Mate, well, yeah. look, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm definitely, like, keen to explore some of the stuff in your head and bring it to well, life and, and try and help coaches uh, along the way. Do you want to kind of give a brief summary of, of what's got us to this point, both you and me, I guess, so we've known each other a while, but... Also, like yeah. you've been alive for, for for a little bit on this planet. Yeah, too many years to mention. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I was a policeman for 30 years, as you know, and in sort of the second half of that career, spent some time as a firearms officer and a fair amount of time as, a, as I was progressing through the ranks as a firearms commander. Did quite a few jobs as a hostage siege a firearms commander. And... In those experiences, although it wasn't an environment where you could really put your hand up and say, I've got a bit of a problem, but quite often my brains would go to scrambled eggs, you know, on the cusp of some pretty difficult decisions. Luckily, I worked with great people and my leadership style was quite consultative. So, you know, I'd listen and then from advice, I I developed good plans anyway. So working in good teams was great and got me through. But at some point, I just decided I needed to work out what's going on in my own head. And I kind of got obsessive about this and learned a lot about the subconscious mind, why some people will go into a really tough situation and thrive, inspire, perform at their best. And some people would uh, feel shackled and not be able to think. And it made a sense that a lot of my life in, in, in my childhood too, uh, I found out quite late in life that, uh, the beatings I had as a kid left me with PTSD. And that was a, l- a big part of m- my issue. Got past it. I was then able to talk to colleagues about it and say, look, I had this problem. Uh, I'm, I'm fine now. Uh, in a, an attempt to uh, sort of bring it to light, 
whilst it didn't get people to talk openly about it, I suddenly had this amazing unofficial coaching practice at work where other senior officers were coming to me and say, look, I don't want to talk about it out loud either, but I've got this same problem. Can you help me? And I really enjoyed that. And then they would send people to me um, for other reasons, you know, people that work for them. And I was helping them. I thought, this is fantastic. You know, the stuff I've learned is really, really useful. I wonder if there's anything I can do with this. And then when I left, a friend of mine who managed a non-league football club, but, you know, they're on the cusp of getting into the leagues, said, can you work with my team? And that was tough, but a really interesting experience. And uh, really enjoyed that and really enjoyed helping him make a difference. And we learned, learned a lot on the language there, and, and that's some of the things we worked on together, wasn't it? So working with language in the police, um, I, I ended up working with some of the more forward-looking police negotiators about the language they used in these hostage siege interventions. And we really developed language patterns uh, into something that you could use in you know, these tense, hostile situations, but influence people subliminally towards our ethical outcomes. I remember one of the lads was a top police negotiator and worked all over the world as well as the West Midlands. And he was saying, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but um, people just put the knife down, put the gun down, let the hostage go, step off the roof just that much more quickly now because of the stuff that we were doing. And a lot of that was just outcomes, rapport, listening to people's language, understanding what their verbal triggers were and using those, utilising them. Nice. And then... Uh, I, I just had a fantastic 10 years working in sport where I consider myself semi-retired, but I work with great people like yourself, your colleagues, just just really amazing people. And uh, couldn't really believe I was working in that environment, but I just loved it. Um, retired from that, moved to Spain, started writing my book and my website. So, so that's that's it. Nice. And the book is now written, which is exciting. You've, as you've said, it's like, it's understandable for a six year old. <laughs> well, it, it includes everything that the secret for me was understanding the subconscious mind. So subconscious mind, it, you know, this, I'm going to put this into Brummie. Okay. So this is really easy, but you know, a psychologist would pick me up on this, but this is how a Brummie explains it. So it's always trying to protect you, but a lot of what it's learned are how, it needs to protect you, is out of date. So as a kid, I was beaten a lot. And I learned to be quiet. Don't be noticed. And so when I was in the police and I was in these environments where not only was I was noticed, I was the leader and I had to make decisions that had quite significant consequences. My subconscious mind was trying to trigger fight, flight or freeze. Get the hell out of here. This is dangerous for you. Well, that learning was out of date and it was harming me. It wasn't helping me be, be the best that I could be. And our subconscious minds are in control all the time. They allow our conscious minds. If Elon Musk explained it really, really well on a podcast I watched. He said it's like having a monkey brain with a, a computer chip added to it. And the monkey brain is having all the instincts and saying to the chip, sort this out for me. But the minute it senses danger, it shuts down the chip. And that's the bit that's responsible for logical thinking, problem solving, clear thought, all the things we need in modern day problem situations. Yeah. You said uh, early on, and it was something I was wondering what you were thinking about. And I mean, to tie it in with coaching, like it's decision making, isn't it, around 
What am I going to say? When am I going to say it? How am I going to say it? What does my body language look like? And I just spoke to a coach who I think you might know because he was in Birmingham and and he, he won't mind me mentioning this, but he just he just described exactly that on a pitch, rugby pitch. He said something happened on the pitch. The players started getting agitated with each other. And he said, his language was, he said, I, I actually took the cowardly option and I stepped away from it, which I don't think it is the cowardly option, but it's like he, no. just, like, he just stepped away. And he said, actually, fortunately, it sorted itself out. So I guess I was thinking about, well, my question was, what were you thinking about when you said your, your head was scrambled? So I think lots of coaches have this as well, like lots of stuff going on, not quite what I'm used to. Might be on a match day where actually there's some quite heightened feelings going on. People's heads are scrambled and it is impacting upon people's decision-making. But there's two things here. I, I put it down to identity. So in, we have a self-image, a picture of ourselves, thoughts of who we are, how we fit into the world. And that's embedded in our subconscious mind. We've learned it by the time we're age six. Put it really, I call it between a low score or a high score identity. And the score thing comes from that questionnaire that I'm revamping that asks a bunch of questions. And although you won't really realise it, the questions are examining how your subconscious mind responds to a situation. People, so like some of the negotiators, the, the one guy uh, I work with a lot on developing the language patterns, um, Pressure didn't really affect him. He just believed he'd go in and make a difference. And he went into dreadful situations. I mean, he would go into a situation when everything had gone wrong. You know, people don't call negotiators in when things are going well. You know, he'll be there with a firearms team around him. That's a sign that stuff has gone badly wrong, let me tell you. And boy, could he work. He was just amazing. And when uh, he did my little quiz, he just came out with a really high score identity. What that means is, at a level of safety, a level of belonging, being wanted and feeling engaged with people, and a, a level of being respected, he just felt he'd got all that. Wherever he went, he could be safe, keep himself safe, keep other people safe. People wanted him around. They knew what he brought to any situation, and they respected him. And then that added up to a feeling that wherever he went, no matter how bad a situation was, he felt he could be successful. So for him, he'd go into a tough situation, his brain would be switched on, and he'd have ideas and flexibility of thought. He might step away, but he wouldn't think that was a coward's way out, which is a sign of how that guy thinks about himself, by the way. These little slips of language are really insightful. He would think, no, that's the clever thing to do. I'll step away and I'll let them sort it out. For people who haven't got like that, so I would go into these situations with a low score identity. I mean, my stepfather would hit me. He would hit me hard, and sometimes it would be over a sustained period of time. And he would be telling me I was useless as he was doing this. He would be telling me I was no good. I was never as good as him. When he was my age, he was so much better. But when you're young, you believe it. So when I would go into a situation, I would naturally think I'm not safe. I don't belong, I'm not wanted, I'm not respected. That wouldn't be a conscious thing. That would just be what was going on in my subconscious mind. The way I got over that was breathing. So if you just learn to breathe through your diaphragm, you stop the biological process that ends up with your brain, your conscious brain switching off. So it's that 7-Eleven breathing. And then I was focused on outcomes. 
Because if you focus, if you're clear all the time on what you want to achieve, and, and I, I do a thing as well where I get people to think, right, develop your outcome. In this situation, what do you want to achieve? What does that look like? What do you think when you've achieved it? What does it sound like, feel like? You actually coach your subconscious mind to say, this is where we're going, it's okay. And then with the breathing, then what I found was I'd still feel pressure. I'd still have the adrenaline going, but now I'd use it because adrenaline's there to make you feel sharper, fitter, stronger. I'd breathe the adrenaline in and I'd be thinking about my outcomes and I'd be okay. Just those little things make... And, that, and that's what I had to do. That's why what I learned, I think, worked well because it wasn't a theoretical thing I was doing. It was very practical. And my approach, which I came to call Impress, had to work in a pressure environment. I remember some of my first sessions with the negotiators when I was talking about language skills. They took me by surprise. They didn't want me to be prepared and they managed to get into my diary at a time and nobody got into my diary negotiated past my very protective PA. I walked into my office and just slapped down about 60 scenarios on the desk. And although I was a senior officer, they couldn't call me smart ass. That's pretty much what they said. They said, okay, smart Alec, what would you do about these? We want you to deal with them unprepared like we do. And I started talking through the language styles and patterns I might use. The first thing they said was too complicated. Can you imagine how pressured we feel? I can't think that through. One guy said, I'm on the top of a tower block trying to stop somebody from jumping and I'm scared of heights. I can hardly think myself. And so we had to work through these things until they became really usable in, in the moment in high pressure situations. So, so that's why things like outcomes, breathing work is because you can do them in, in the moment. Yeah, nice, man. And i got a couple of things that's kind of triggered me on. One is definitely like how people speak to themselves. Yeah. So often with coaches, you know, that language. So that was the word I was like, well, what do you mean by that word? I'm really like interested by that. Same with players. I know we were chatting about a striker earlier, but, you know, that, that moment where someone has to take a penalty, they have to like take a shot at goal. They've got to throw a, a World Cup winning line out. Like how you speak to yourself is probably something that's fairly critical, I would imagine. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work in those areas. And um, what, so it's, it's what your mind is focused upon. How you talk to yourself, that's an echo from that identity thing. So if you think, like Harry Kane, if he's going to take a penalty, Alan Shearer, you just sort of put your beard down and wait for the goal. They're not thinking, uh, this is going to be tough. They're not thinking, what happens if I miss? They're just going, I know where I'm going to put this ball and it's a goal. They could almost tell the goalkeeper where they're going to kick it and kick it in that place and still score. So um, it's like talking with that, that ladder I mentioned to you earlier. In fact, I'll, I'll just go through that story very quickly again. Couldn't score a goal. Still a good player. He's losing his head a little bit and the club... So Premiership Football Club asked me to work with him and I said to him, what are you thinking in the moment you're going to strike the ball to score a goal? And he said, I mustn't miss. So his brain, his subconscious mind has got to process missing before he can process the thought of scoring. And you just haven't got the time to do that under pressure when you've got a split second to strike the ball. So he's thinking about missing 
And that is directing his actions. That is directing his subconscious mind. You're drawn to what you're focused on. And your language is coming from the place where your brain is. What we did with him was, I, he told me that the best goal he'd scored that season, he said it felt sweet when he struck it. That's a kinesthetic, a feeling thing. So I did a little routine with him where I got him to switch from, I mustn't miss to this is going to feel sweet. And it sounds too good to be true, but he actually went into a game, a reserve team game against Arsenal, straight after our session and scored a hat-trick just because he'd stopped thinking I mustn't miss and was now thinking it's going to be sweet. I was working with a dual league uh, rugby lad in, up north once and playing rugby league, a dual code lad, playing rugby league, he dropped a ball from a kickoff, which in rugby league is a real big thing because, as you know, then they've got sustained pressure on their line. And he'd been really wobbly under the ball since then. It was, he was always thinking about that moment that he dropped it. And we just did one little session. In fact, it wasn't even a one-to-one -one coaching. This was in a, a workshop I was doing. And he said, how would you handle this? And I asked him a little question. And this is the thing about language. I said to him, uh, did you have a holiday in the off-season? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's, what's the first thing you remember from that holiday? And he talked about the scenery, so it was visual. I didn't, didn't really matter where he was or what he was doing, but he talked about a visual thing. So I said to him, when the ball's in the air coming down and you're underneath it, what do you see? And he went, ah. And he, he thought for a minute. He said, well, I see the ball turning over end to end. And sometimes I can see the maker's name. I said, that's all you've got to think about. Notice the maker's name. Focus on the maker's name. Because I knew his subconscious mind knew how to catch a ball. And all he was doing was getting in his own way by thinking about that one that he dropped. And uh, I went back up at, uh, a month later and he said, he, you know, his yips had gone completely. He was catching the ball cleanly. And all he was doing was watching the ball, focusing on the maker's name. Boom. Caught. So it is that thing. What, what you're saying to yourself, as you said, Rusty, comes from that subconscious thinking process. It's a great thing to get people to talk about because it can tell you how to guide them to uh, get back to being at the best. A couple of, uh, so Reese Crane, uh, he won't mind me telling this story. He'd, he'd spoke to me about it. He was really good under the high ball, played rugby for Salem Bath. He said until the coaches told him he wasn't and started making him like practice it. And then he just started speaking to himself. And then the other one was actually just spoke to the, um, to the psychologist at Wasps um, yesterday. And uh, Jacob and Marga, I said, oh, Jacob's kick for the corner was, was class at the weekend. Like often with those, they'll play safe, but actually Jacob goes full yeah. on. He said, oh, we just explored his super strengths. Um, it's a model done by a lady called Katie Ludlow, Katie Ludlow. And we just call it wiggle room. Like we want him to put his super strengths on the pitch. So we're cool that if he knows he's not going to get told off if it goes dead. We want him to really try that stuff and just that, yeah, I guess that support from coaches and, and talking about the stuff you're good at is probably a, a better place to be than lots of people are thinking, well, I don't want to mess this up if I miss this then. And actually they haven't even had those, those types of conversations with coaches or themselves beforehand, especially younger so players. I think that's everything. In that one little idea there, that psychologist has got everything across, in my view. 
So it's that safety thing. He's safe. If he misses, he's safe. He's not going to be ridiculed. He's not going to be hauled over the coals. He still belongs. The team still want him there, practicing his super strengths. And they respect him. The idea of super strengths is all about respect. That's fantastic. The other thing about that, and it's a big part of my work, is that what they're saying is, you have got core strengths. Now, this is really important. Under pressure, if people turn and look externally at the problem, that's really going to hurt them. When you're playing elite sport, everybody's good. You can't spend too much time thinking about how good the opposition is. You've got to look inward at your core strengths and understand two things about them. They're permanent and they're part of who you are. Well, three things, actually. They're part of who you are, your identity, and they will get you through the tough situations. And subliminally, perhaps without even consciously going through that process, that's what that sports psychologist did there. So safety, belonging, respect, permanent skills that will get him through difficult times uh, that are part of his identity as a player. Brilliant. I'm going to come on to the permanent temporary stuff in a second because it was it was like on my list, but I was then... So with the with hostage negotiators, and I guess I guess and, and then maybe reflect this back to coaches, like how important is practice? Like feedback, oh. practice, your language, recording yourself. It's vital. Vital. Thing is with pressure, pressure changes everything. Yeah, how many players in any sport are fantastic in training, but don't take that onto the pitch? because pressure changes everything. Even that breathing thing I talked about, people find it hard if the only time they try it is when they're under the cosh. That's because your body's trying to do something else. When we're under pressure, we generally breathe irregular breathing through the chest. The body wants to do that because it thinks that's the way to protect you because it's part of the fight or flight process. So even breathing, you have to practice. The language ideas. So that uh, police negotiator, top guy I work with, I mean, he worked in Iraq, Africa, Afghanistan, he worked all over the world. Blockswich, Coventry, the big places in the world too. Um, and sometimes we, we, you turn up at a scene and you suspect the bad guys have gone. All right, they know the police are coming, they've got out of there, but you don't know it, but you're pretty certain. So you put your cordon on and you're thinking, maybe we'll just go in and clear the room. Then uh, I call him Eddard, I've changed his name. Eddard comes along and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. He might still be in there. And he talked to an empty room for an hour. And in the end, I say, Eddard, you know, we've got a firearms team here. We've got to knock this job on the head. I'm going in. He said, well, okay, then. And you go in and find that there was nobody there. But he would do that to practice. He loved it. You know, the whole scene was set up. It was real. And I'd say, what are you doing? He said, I'm just rapping. I'm just trying the language techniques. I'm just... And so when it came to the proper crunch moments, he was ready. replicate and you replicate the pressure as much as you can you know when I was training as a firearms officer we do things like you'd you'd have a qualification shoot so uh, you'd shoot on a range and you've got to get a score you don't get that score you're off you're out so you know you're nervous because you're going up you know you got a qualification shoot that day and then you'd find that you get dressed in all your gear, which is heavy. They give you a gas mask and you go for a run wearing a gas mask, which is hard. And it's not on a track, you know, it's over hills and things. And then you're on an army range. So at the end of that run, and you know this is coming and they want you to know because they want to pressure you. 
you run into a bunker and that bunker is full of CS. And then you have to take your gas mask off, ask us some, some really hard questions like what your name is and all the things you find it hard to remember when you're choking and snot's pouring out every orifice and you're crying and you're on your knees. And then they throw you out and you do your, your shoot. Well, they're not being unnecessarily mean. What they want to do is to sort those people out that can then go out and shoot accurately under pressure. Because when you're in the real life situation, there's no pressure like it. So yeah, practice, practice, practice. And you know, I, I do believe you make it fun too. That yeah, wasn't fun. It, it, you triggered me on uh, last week's SAS. Are you tough enough when they put them in the CS gas room and people were like struggling just to oh, like, even think, quite frankly. Yeah, they do it all the time. Other shoots we'd have where we'd, you'd have a shooting street where different targets would be presented to you. So like one target, you have a woman with a child holding a broom. The next target is a, and, and you're having to go through a, a mock street as you're doing this too. And there are other challenges coming at you as you're doing it. Then a target is a woman with a, a shotgun. And then the target is a woman with a shotgun and pointing at you. And you've, and they push you to these uh, moral extremes of, of what decision you're going to make in the, in the circumstances. But before they did that one, the toilet block is next door to the firing range. That one was all indoors with the, the mocked, mocked up street and everything. And they say, right, your weapon is in the toilet block. We've dismantled it. We've hidden it all around the toilet block. And your job is to go in there, find all the pieces of your weapon. You've got five minutes to do that. Assemble it. Knock on the door. When you're ready, if you don't do it in five minutes, you fail. You get in the room and it's kind of no surprise by then, but the room is full of CS. You're crawling around the room, putting your hand down the toilet pan and things, to, and finding where all the bits of your weapon are, assembling it. You know, when when you get into the room and you see a woman with a a broom, you're you're tempted just to shoot her anyway because you feel really bad. <laughs> but uh, you've got to you've got what they're trying to do is to push you you to extremes and really stress you. I don't recommend that for sport, to be honest. I think. I think you should try different techniques that are more fun, but there are ways of doing it. But it's about get, getting these habits. The thing is, it's your subconscious mind has got to understand what your strengths are, what your goals are, what you're there to achieve, and keep your thinking brain switched on. That's what it's all about. Yeah, nice. And with, and with that, I mean, just thinking aloud about that, like how, how, how intentional are you around? Like a couple of things as well that I think coaches wouldn't do that well. So like planning and pre-morteming, like if this happens, then this, and then also re reviewing decision-making because ultimately coaching is decision-making, isn't it? Like you can yeah, organize a practice and you can do some stuff. You can choose to intervene, not intervene, share feedback in different ways to ask certain questions, to perhaps go and stand over there, to look at this, to look at that. Like you've got choices as coaches and exactly the same as as you would as a, as a negotiator, really. Like, you've probably got a, this is what we're aiming to do, probably save a life, I would imagine. And then, like, oh, how, would you, how would you plan? And then how would you, you reflect? Uh, that's, uh, that's a really good question. So planning was all, the thing about planning is always the best it can be. Like, if you're, 
if, if you get uh, a call, you know, you're in bed at three o'clock in the morning, got to go into headquarters, somebody's been kidnapped, uh, we know where they are, you've got to lead the firearms team. Often your briefing is on the telephone, it's on a mobile phone, and you're doing your planning as you're driving to the scene. Uh, but for me, it's always a plan, always have an outcome because one of the things you're doing as a coach and obviously as a leader in those situations is you're leading people under pressure and you want them to perform under pressure. And so you want to focus people on outcomes. Often, so I, as I say, I was quite consultative. So I'd ask people, I always work with good people and I'd ask for suggestions. I'd always get suggestions before I develop my plan. And there are some people I'd call the away froms. You can't do this because, you can't do that because. They were always worried about what you couldn't do. Now, many people didn't like them because you could spend all your time avoiding problems and getting nothing done. But I kind of liked them because they, as somebody who was always very towards, always trying to go as fast as I can towards a solution, they would give me things I had to plan around. So there's always a plan. Whether I remember once... Um, won't talk about this scenario, but leading like 120 officers, 60 firearms and 60 public order officers to raid a site looking for automatic weapons and Semtex. And we planned overnight. We got the intelligence at seven o'clock in the evening and we did the job at six o'clock in the morning. We had loads of time. Other times I've done it on the phone, uh, you know, driving to the scene, but always have a plan, always have positive outcomes and contingency plans. So I'd always think through as many things as I could that could go wrong and have an idea of how I'd start to address it. Just gives you a, a heads up and a start. Yeah, helpful for me to hang out with the away froms as well. They would be yeah. quite helpful for someone like me who, yeah. who may, not, uh, may not predict what's about to go wrong. Yeah, but you see, you're a learner, so learners do, because it's, I can learn from it, anybody, where some people would think, oh, they're just trying to stop me doing what I'm doing. No, you can learn from anybody. You still have to lead them, because they can be people that, with all the best intentions, avoid every problem in the world, but actually get nothing done. But the review process is essential. You know, it, In that process, everything was debriefed, and... The, the different cultures of debrief, some could be quite hostile, but the best ones were where you could put everything on the table, admit all your mistakes, because all you wanted to do was be better for the next job and learn and learn and learn. And when there was no, it was safe, belonging and respect. When you were in that environment where people would appreciate, like a coach in a match, that under pressure, they can feel the scrutiny of all the eyes around them. They're the ones who've got a choice to make. It can be tough. If, and we don't really develop coaches that much. I know the great companies like the Magic Academy around, but there isn't enough work done on coaches. It can be at the top level, you know, pass or fail, kind of. You know, why aren't we doing more to develop these people? And um, what we did was just ruthlessly, we debrief everything as honestly as we could and learn everything we could. It was really important. Hey, Wilgie, tell everyone what you're up to at Call 37. Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the northeast and we're the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Call 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Call 37? 
Uh, if I was to pick three, Fletch, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of at Core 37? Oh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people. Everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we genuinely care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're a Geordie, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to Tom at core-37.com. Yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking to quite a few coaches at the moment who are like leading teams and just going, look, just rate yourself like 1 to 11. Where are you as a coaching team? Like, how effective are you? On a, maybe on a good day, maybe on a bad day. And, uh, and I'm generally getting some quite low numbers back. And again, like, well, and what are you doing about it? Like, mm-hmm. how intentional are you? Often people are off doing some stuff individually, but again, like it's a coaching team. Like you need to yeah. and be able to work together. And again, that's this is stuff that takes that takes practice and intent and you know uh, rough uh, plans as good as they can be, and then reflection. And I think um, yeah, look, I, that's obviously why I've got you on because I think it's a. Uh, it's an area that we could learn a lot from. I'm gonna I'm gonna delve into some of the stuff I can remember from back in the okay. day. So hopefully some stuff that's stuck in my uh, subconscious mind, um, like permanent or temporary. So thinking about making, you know, stuff that's a strength permanent and stuff that might not have gone so well temporary. So this is the secret, right? This is it. If your reflex. And you, this is, again, comes back to language. So, you know, somebody, let's say you're in the office, somebody uh, is waving their hands around, trying to explain something and knocks over a cup of coffee. What are the first words that come out of their mouth? Those are really insightful. If it's, oh, I'm so stupid. That's telling you something really important about their self-image, their identity, how they see themselves. That's a permanent condition. It's about self, it's about them. And it will apply to everything they do. They might, um, a few moments later, say, oh, well, I didn't see somebody put that cup of coffee down there. But that's a later correction by the conscious mind. It's not from their identity. The first words are an echo out of their identity, their self-image. Now, that person is likely to then feel that a mistake, if if they do something poor as a coach, they're likely to feel that it's about them, whether they're good enough. And that's the thing that we have to change. And you can do that. And as a coach, you need to change it with your players. So I worked with um, this one football team. And um, they'd had a poor start to the season. And the defence were very, very um, aggressive with one another. And if one of them made a mistake, they were just really digging them out on the pitch, really aggressively, foul language. And the coach was saying, I don't know how to change this. So we had a session, the midfielders and the defence. And I did the rapport thing. This is vital. You know, got to make a connection. People's minds aren't open to you. Often when I come in, like when you get me work with your teams, you sods, 
people would sit there like this and they go, okay, here he is, inspire me then. And, you know, that's impossible to get past. You know, you've got to break that down and get people's minds open to you. So I started off getting them talking about games they played, good games they played, until they were talking freely. And then I said, okay, let's get on to this. Tell me, and I picked on one lad who's quite a strong character. I said, why are you happy that he's in the team? What does he bring? Tell me three things that he brings to the team. I know it's not a new thing, but they said, oh, it brings pace, agility, good positioning. And I did that basically with the whole, whole team until we got like 20 or 30 real strengths that they'd got as a unit. And then I, I just in that session, without going into it too deeply, I got them to appreciate that those strengths were permanent and they defined them as a unit in that team. That's what they stood for. When people saw them, when the opposition feared them, that's why they feared them. And I got them talking about this. Why should the opposition fear you with those skills? Not for the sake of talking, but so it would be embedded in their minds. The more they talked about it, the more they argued, debated about it, the more it became a reality for them. So what changed on the pitch then was the temporary thing. So instead of digging each, say somebody passed a ball, misplaced the pass and went to the opposition. Instead of saying, you effing twat, you're effing rubbish, they would go, what are you doing that for? You've got space, pace, speed and agility. Get it better next time. So you still had the same sort of laddish, aggressive style, but instead it acknowledged that mistakes were temporary. They weren't part of who they are. They didn't define them. And they were over. Once they were made, they were over history. But their qualities were permanent. They did define who they are. People feared them for those qualities. And every moment of competition, they helped them achieve. And, that, you know, I, again, some of my stories sound too good to be true, but they went on an unbeaten run. This was right at the start of the season. They went on an unbeaten run. They lost their first seven matches, then were unbeaten right through to Christmas. And it was just a change in mindset. But, you know, when you think about what momentum is, what hope is, what that winning mentality is, you know, it's all about oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine. Whereas the feeling of losing, not being good enough is the opposite. It's the stress hormones. When you talk to your players like this, you build that feeling of hope and momentum. Even if they have a setback, you know, they've still got that momentum, that feeling of success, of being successful. And it keeps people going and it, it keeps them playing at their best, which is what I think coaching is about. It's getting the players to be at their best or a key part of it. Yeah, and it's reminded me of um, often uh, um, challenging my wife around use of the word always and never, and uh, her now <laughs> starting to challenge me on it. Um, the the yeah. next one that I, that I just wrote down was like resistance breakers. So actually how you start questions to, you know, to not like sound like, you know, quite aggressive. So I'm wondering, um, I'm curious. Um, Love it. Those type of things. So I'm assuming there's a bit of science behind that. Oh, yeah. So this is the inspirational language piece. So people resist. So let's say you got doing a halftime talk. The team are under the cosh. They're behind on the scoreboard and they've been outplayed. If you say you're good enough to take a game out to that 
that team and beat them. They've got that stress. They've got the cortisol. They've got the adrenaline going around. They've got these negative feelings. They've got thoughts, images, pictures in their mind of a dreadful final score if things carry on as they are. Well, some have. If you say, you're good enough, they go, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? They're going to resist that. Uh, and this comes down to the leadership thing. So I'll talk about rapport again, but you know, leaders, rapport is different for leaders. So if I'm doing one-to-one -one work with an athlete, I will spend sometimes 20 minutes just getting that athlete to talk to me. And I'll spend 2% of the time talking if I can. I just want them to talk, listen to their language, listen to the structure of their language, save up things that I have taught me how the subconscious mind is working that I can use later. But you notice them relax and you notice there's a point where they're talking to you without thinking. And that's when you can start working with them. With a lead, leader, it's different. What people want from a leader is they want that safety thing. So sometimes they want a leader to take charge. They want to be listened to. They want to feel respected, that they belong. You can still listen, but you've got to take charge too. So one um, lad I work with in um, football who's real, real good coach, real learner as a coach, real, really changed his style. He did this. So his team were losing 2-0. He said, I want to, I how do I deal with 2-0 at halftime? So he did this thing where he would give them uh, the first part of halftime to dig each other out because they'd always have a bit of a Barney. Then he'd come in and say, it's three things we've got to do better. It's X, Y, and Z. Get out there. I want you to get out there and do it, the leadership thing. And then he'd say, you may not be thinking, resistance breaker. The next line is the message he wants to implant in their brain. You're good enough to get a result in this game. So you may not be thinking. You're good enough to get a result in this brain is a resistance breaker plus an embedded command. And is not but. Don't say but, because if you say but, you're signaling disagreement with what came before. You're good enough to get something in this game. And um, it may be only after the game, looking back, resistance breaker, you think about the skills and qualities you've got that other teams fear. Are you? Uh, and, the, you know, putting that are you at the end gets them subliminally to think about it. And it may not be until the third or fourth time uh, you've done this out there on the pitch, or the, may not be until the third or fourth time you've created a move that's got us in the box in a threatening situation that you realize for the first time that you've got everything you need inside to take the game to the opposition. And then he finished off with, so when you're walking off that pitch and you've got a result, which is what I call success strategy, so coming to the end and imagining a successful conclusion, and this is a presupposition, what is it that you will have done to have got that result? And I said to him, if they answer your question, they've accepted the whole premise that they've got the strength and skills to go out and get a result. And he said, oh, they start saying, oh, we've got the speed, we've got the pace, we've got the agility, we've just got to get out there and take it to them. And, and again, he found that technique worked really, really well from turning around that, that situation using the embedded commands which are embedded behind a resistance breaker. And that is just indirect language. That's basically what it is. So much to think about. Um, <laughs> clearly, pra clearly practice is key. 
Um, yeah. I've, I've written down lots of notes while you were talking. Some of the other stuff I spoke, about, I, I recalled was like trying to take people into the future. So, you know, yeah. I don't know if you can imagine what it'll feel like on the podium type stuff. The other stuff yeah. I, I wrote down was the button in the hand. My wife always tells me off for, for catching her out on that one. Um, there's a bit of Darren Brown stuff. I'm sh- like, I think you might have called it the Darren Brown Thing. But Darren Bound technique. So one way of getting somebody to think about something is, look, don't think about your skills now. I don't want you to think about them now. Later, we can talk about the skills you've got to, t- because it's an indirect way of getting people. If somebody's resisting what you've got to say, telling them not to do it is a great way of getting them to do it. So Darren Brown would go, I don't want you to think about this card. I've got this card now. Don't think about it now. As he taps his heart and he's got a heart, you know, there. Yeah, I, I would so, I would often use sarcasm like that, but it also reminded me of being at halftime in New Zealand in 2009 with Ben Ryan, and actually I think he did loads of your stuff because I can visibly remember, I think we were like 19-7 down at halftime, coming on the pitch thinking, I'm probably not going to win this. And then, <laughs> and then about a minute later I was like, we're definitely going to win this. Like 100% we're going to win it. And he was like, look, we got loads of excuses, you know, da, da, da. I, I, I don't know if you can imagine what it's going to be like when we win. And everyone leaves the stadium really early. And, you know, and, 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 and what's, you know, when we do win, what was the stuff that's going to have helped us type stuff? And uh, I remember yeah. leaving the pitch literally 90 seconds later going, we're definitely going to win. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to. And it, and it was really like, I was like really like I was a bit blown away by it if I'm honest. Brilliant. Let's well, just put it's where where is your mind? Yeah, you know, I do this thing. You've seen a street test where you've got a sheet of of words and they're colours, and the words are written in a different colour. Yeah. So red will be written in green. You get people to read the words, then you get them to read the colour. And they find it very hard to go the second run through because the subconscious mind re- recognises the word. It's a pattern that it recognises, and you've consciously got to switch it to reading out the colour. So if the word, first word is red, but it's written in blue, you want to say red, but consciously you switch it over to blue. And that's a Stroop test. And I've developed the idea that actually we have things in our minds that are a Stroop magnet. So like when I was riding my motorbike a bit too fast through France, and I saw this sharp left-hand bend through the glare, the sun glaring through the insects on my visor too late. And I had to just crank my bike over to the left. I, I not, it wasn't the first time I'd been in this situation, fortunately. And I knew that if I stared at the curb, I'd hit it. So I stared at the line in the road I wanted to take. And I didn't allow any negative thoughts to enter my head. The bike actually couldn't make it that line. It actually skipped on the tarmac as the bike adjusted to get onto the line. And if it had been a cold or wet day or there'd been some sun on, you know, I'd have been off. But this is the thing about outcomes. You think about what's in your control and what you want to achieve. And your subconscious mind often will sort that out. I'm definitely thinking about being on my skateboard and looking at the curb and not being able to avoid hitting the curb. Like that, (laughs) friendly. There's two other things that I was thinking about that, uh, like where they, where you feel like they fit into this as well. One is almost like commitment, like a bit like, you, you know, we are going to do this or what is it we're going to do? So where do you think does that fit into this? And the other thing was permission. 
So I don't know whether that's almost like part of rapport for you, but actually, you know, do, do, do you mind if I share some thoughts with you type stuff? Are those things that would fit within what you're talking about or something different or? No, no, I think they're great ideas. I, I just think it it's the time and place. You know, I talk about this safety, belonging and, and respect. It changes from environment to environment. So I remember uh, at a football match in Coventry, as Coventry against Man United, so it was a little while away, a little while ago, Man United bought, I don't know, 250 hooligans and they were big, thick-set lads. And they weren't kids, you know, they were mid-20s to mid-30s. And they were, they were tough lads. The country hooligans ran away and hid in the pub. Somebody from the pub called the police. We suspect it was one of the hooligans, but anyway. So a van load of my officers get there. I'm, I'm in a, a different location in Coventry, and I hear them call for backup. So I'm the ground commander, so I jump in a van, which sadly was empty, but for the van driver, I said, get me to that location. So he gets me there. It was in the evening, and I'll never forget it. We turned a corner. It was dark, and the lights of the van picked out my ragged police line, which were taking steps backwards. And then this crowd of hooligans in front of them that you could see, they were just near that tipping point where they were going to charge. Now, I was scared shitless, but I couldn't show that to my officers. They all had these, we had these expandable buttons that about three foot long expanded, about a foot long collapsed. So I ran out, they all had their buttons out, but they had no leadership. There's no time for me to build rapport or anything. I ran in front of them and I said, we're the effing police. We don't go effing backwards, follow me. I got my button out and collapsed it on the floor on the tarmac because I wanted them all to do the same. They all did it, holstered it, turned around and walked towards the hooligans. Now, I was in a situation where I didn't feel I could look backwards because it would be a sign of weakness. But I didn't know if my officers were following me. And I walked towards these hooligans and they all were laughing. They thought this was fantastic. And they're all becking in and jeering. They're like, come on. I got my baton out of my uh, holster and wrapped it. And the reason I'd done all that was I was hoping my officers would copy my lead. I couldn't look backwards. I didn't want to show any weakness, but I heard them all wrap their batons too. Now that has a visual and an oral impact, which is what I wanted because they spent, there's just seven officers behind me against 250, but here's the psychology. They were a mob. They felt like 250 strong. I wanted to, them each to feel like an individual. And the way to do that, if you think of that uh, safety, belonging, respect thing, I had to fracture that and make them think like individuals because individuals wouldn't feel safe, they wouldn't belong. And I could deal with 250 individuals. I couldn't deal with a throng. Then I pointed to what I thought was their ringleader, the most vocal guy in the middle, big, big guy. Showed him my baton and I explained in the clearest language I can, using some ancient Anglo-Saxon, that I was going to wrap it around his neck and ran at him. And I had developed over the years a technique of running, which involved a lot of pumping of arms and legs, which looked rapid, but was actually very, very slow. Tom Cruise. And I thought, pardon? Tom Cruise. You were, you were like a Tom Cruise sprinter. Yeah. 
And I thought, I'll know if my lads are following me now because I'll see it in the look on these guys' faces as I run towards them. And all of a sudden, you could see their, their look changed. And to cut a long story short, they all splintered and ran off. But that, that worked because what those officers needed at that time was somebody to take charge. That was rapport for. They needed safety, belonging, and respect. They knew that it, they were on the verge of being dispersed by the crowd of running away. They would have been humiliated in the eyes of all their, their uh, colleagues, the eyes of the public. You know, their reputations would have been trashed. They could have got hurt you know, because they'd have been attacked by the crowd. What I came in, when I said, we're the effing police, we don't go backwards. They couldn't see how scared I was. Afterwards, I gave them a bit of feedback. I did a bit of the, you see, this is how good you are, the permanent strengths. But I had to tuck my hands in my body armour so they couldn't see them trembling. And when I said, we're the effing police, we don't go effing backwards, they believed in me. And that's what they wanted. I offered them safety, belonging and respect. And that's why they followed me. As for the permission thing, you know, there are other jobs that I did where I'd say, right, this is tough. We've got time, suggestions, ideas. Okay, this is what I'm thinking of. And I get buy-in. Wherever I could, I would do that. Every opportunity I had, because even if it wasn't the best plan, if it was the, band, the plan that got everybody's buy-in, it always was one that they would commit to the most readily. And why safety, belonging and respect? I mean, you mentioned it a lot. I'm guessing like pretty basic human needs. Um, well, it's an extrapolation out of Maslow's hierarchy. Um, some work done on neurological levels. Uh, Gregory Bateson on levels of learning. And taking those theories and thinking about them in a real operational context and what really matters and understanding that it all comes from identity and how do we define ourselves. And I think it varies from environment to environment, but my working theory is we define ourselves is whether we're good enough to keep ourselves, our property and our people safe. Are we good enough to be wanted? Do people want us on their team? And, we, and that's part of safety too, because as hunter-gatherer has been part of a tribe and contributing to that tribe was vital to our safety. And once you've got those two levels, you want to, to be valued. Um, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes to be respected within that environment? And on those foundations, I think we decide whether we're successful people or not. And I think that the absence of those qualities brings the worst out of people in a modern performance setting. The presence of those provides the platform where people can perform at their best. It's not the only thing, but without it. I was listening to some of your po podcasts and the, um, oh, his name's just got me, the ex-All Black guy talked about this, place for Bristol, for, uh, John. Yeah, he was talking about how they, how they value everybody, even the people that prepare their food. You know, how, how they talk about things, you know. I, I thought it was really insightful, the stuff that he was coming out with. And without using that language, it's what they were doing. They created this environment where everybody was safe to express themselves, this environment where everybody felt they belonged, everybody felt they contributed, everybody felt they were important and respected. And it's like then everybody gives everybody else energy 
belief. So those guys who go out and get their shirts dirty feel that they've got all this thing behind them to empower them. The, the absence of it would resonate with me. Um, and yeah. uh, it would probably shout out to uh, Owen Eastwood's book as well, uh, Belonging, that's just come out. Tell me about the book. So it's going to be digital. It's got a lot of words in it. There's not too many more words. It's taken you ages. Uh, I'm writing a book now. I'm hoping mine doesn't take as long. Uh, where, where can people find it? Where can people find you? Um, you you rashly promised to proofread it for me once, so I'm going to because I know you'll be very oh, no, honest. Yeah. So I'll send it to you. So it's draft form now. So it sent me a couple of years to write it. The first versions uh, read like a police report, so they were scrapped. <laughs> uh, I wrote it in Grammarly, set the reading age low, not because I want it to be accessible. So the first half is all the theory. It's about identity in the subconscious mind because on that foundation, it's like that stepping back and letting people solve their problems. On that foundation, many people will take that and work a lot better. And then it goes into impress the seven steps. And I've built that around the sort of stories I've been talking about today. So it's all driven by stories to illustrate it. So hopefully it's engaging. And by this time next year, I hope it will be on a website with a lot of resources that go with it. Uh, there'll be, it'll be driven by a questionnaire that I used before. I remember doing a talk for the RFU, being in the lift going up to the room to do this talk. And the, there's this big guy, I won't mention his name, but towering over me and like, I'm six foot four. And he said, uh, I read your blog, Mike, remember my old blog. And the questionnaire was on it. He said, I did your questionnaire. He said, I thought it was shit. And it's like, this lift, there's me and all these big rubby guys in it. I said, oh. He said, then I got the feedback. And he said, it was spot on. It was exactly me. He said, it was great. It's brilliant. I thought, oh, thank heavens for that. But um, th this then gives you a score, which indicates, you know, that high score, low score identity. And then wherever you are, you know, you can have a too high score. You know, coaches can come in full of a confidence, inspire people, but do no reflection, no listening. And eventually they lose the team. So, you know, where it is, it gives you, then it will give you a pass to go on. And it's about just helping learners, people who want to learn, who people who want to be better on their journey. It won't be the only resource, but hopefully a great resource. Uh, and there'll be quite a lot on there. So I'm writing all that now and enjoying it. No, it's a great process. And if people want to reach out to you, what, what's the best place? Is there LinkedIn or uh, Twitter or TikTok? LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, marketingpresscoaching.co.uk and LinkedIn. Nice. Mate, it's as ever been a pleasure. Loads of it's always great, Rusty. Remember, you did agree with me that one moment when I said I wouldn't charge you for that, our last gig, that we'll do you a um, world tour together. So that's still in the back of my Once mind. Once COVID is done, we will do the world tour. Brilliant. Brilliant. I look forward to that. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Stay safe. And you, buddy. Bye for now.